The scripture reading this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 2. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king has said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Jeshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed me. What is this you are doing? they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Elishab, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again this morning? Father, we do come to you. We have confessed our need. We have sung of your oath, of your covenant, of your faithfulness. We pray that this morning you would continue the work in us faithfully, that you would find us willing, cooperative, and submissive to you and to your word. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, So my assignment for this morning was Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3 is a long list of names and locations, and I didn't want to make, I like you, Steve, I didn't want to make you read a whole long list of, of names and locations, but just to give you a taste of Nehemiah chapter 3, let me read another verse, okay? This is verse 3. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassana. They laid its beams and its doors and its bolts and its bars in place. Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshula, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshud, something, 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 made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. 32 verses of that. So when I first read this, I thought to myself, why does Bob hate me? What did I do to him that he assigns me this passage? Well, one commentator referred to this as a colorless memorandum of assignments. The section is so boring. Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary, leaves chapter 3 out entirely. He goes straight from chapter 2 to chapter 4. But later in the week, I decided I'm happy to be preaching this section. Because I've read this passage, this chapter of Nehemiah. Now, 
I've skimmed this chapter of Nehemiah dozens of times in my Bible reading, but I've never dug into it. So this week, I dug into it and began asking the question, why is it here? Uh, Nehemiah could have just gone right from chapter 2 to, right to chapter 4, and the narrative, the story, wouldn't have missed a beat. One sentence probably would, would have sufficed. We built the wall. Or, or maybe better, God... The God of heaven prospered the work as the people rose and built the wall. So why this 32 verses of names and locations? And this week, I want us to think or notice maybe five details that Nehemiah includes in this account. Five details that show us how God uses means to accomplish his purposes and meet needs. Five details. The first, the people responded to God's prompting and took up the work. Sounds fairly basic. But Nehemiah says, God's hand is in this. Let me tell you what God has done to bring me to this place. Let me tell you how God has given me success in front of the king. God of heaven, he says, will give us success. And so the people took up shovels and pickaxes and began to work. And the first group that takes up the work are the priests. Eliashib and the high priest and his fellow priests went to work. It's almost as if that's... Nehemiah's way, uh, the author's way of acknowledging, yes, God is in this. The priests were the first to take up the work. Now there is a form of piety that has crept in at various points into the history of the church that says, if God wants it done, God will do it. Sit back and, and let God do it. William Carey ran into that mindset. If you don't know William Carey, he was an 18th century Christian who had a heart for foreign missions. And as a young man, he went before a board of Baptist ministers to convince them to take up the cause of foreign missions. And he was rebuked for it. One of the old ministers said to him, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast, which in the 18th century was an insult. If God wants to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Now kids, that's the equivalent of telling your mom and dad, if God wants me to get an A on the math test, he'll give me an A. I don't need to study. Not a good approach. But that kind of mindset has found its way into Christian living, too. People take hold of the great promises of God. Promises like what you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God will sanctify you. God will present himself blameless. Present you blameless before him. God is faithful. He will do it. 
And they take hold of those promises and they say, let go, let God. That's not what we see happening here in Nehemiah chapter 3. In Nehemiah chapter 3, they had this great promise, God will prosper the work. And so they rose up and began to do the work. Thankfully, that's what William Carey, the young man who was told to sit down, did. He went on to be a missionary to India, the founder of the modern missions movement. He once preached a sermon that became a book, and I love the title of it. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. It's bringing these two things together. God has made great promises to us. So go out and do great things. God has promised to sanctify you through and through. So get to work mortifying your sin. Make use of the means he's given you. Sit under the preaching of the word. Come and feed your soul on the bread and the wine. Work hard at living into your baptism. Do the work. God will prosper it. When you think corporately, we, the church, have been given tremendous promises by God. Hebrews chapter 11. We come to Mount Zion referring to the church, uh, the holy city of God, the new Jerusalem, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus says of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. And we can latch onto those promises and sit back on our laurels and say, God's going to do it. Or we could like the Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 3, say, great, give me a shovel and put me to work. The work will succeed. Every once in a while I hear or read doom and gloom kind of prophecies about the state of the church, where the church is in the nation is heading, and those concern me, but I don't fall into despair Because I know the promises that God has made regarding the church. Instead, it motivates me to work, to repair what has fallen into disrepair. So the first detail is that the people responded to these great promises and threw themselves into the work. The second detail is that the people were united, working shoulder to shoulder to meet the need. Uh, When Nehemiah talks about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of wall. It's not the kind of wall that runs down 3rd Street, you know, in front of, around IU's campus, you know, waist high, comfortable to sit on. It was 40 foot tall, 8 foot wide. Some of the stones that were used in the building of this wall weighed upwards of 50 tons. And it was a long wall. Uh, There's all kinds of estimates about how big the city of Jerusalem was at that point. The smallest estimate is that it was about 160 acres, which would be about the size of St. Charles' property, our property, and Rogers-Binford property combined. 
That's the small estimate. The large estimate is about four times that size. Building a wall 40 foot high, 8 foot thick around that. They had to come together and work shoulder to shoulder. This was the ultimate in group projects. I I hate group projects. Hate them. You know, I'd get stuck doing the research. Someone else would write the paper and someone else would make the presentation. And you had to rely on them to do their job, right? Otherwise, your grade tanks. Think about this. You're building a wall around your city for protection. Great, you did your job. Your section of the wall is strong, it's secure. But old Zarusha Billy Bob over here slacked off. There's a big gaping hole in his wall. What good is the wall then? Marauders, raiders, armies can just pour through it. They had to come together, work shoulder to shoulder, And the list of people who Nehemiah includes as participating in this is incredible. You have the priests and the Levites and the temple workers. People who are comfortable with scrolls and books instructing people. And now they're out there with shovels and trowels. Craftsmen and laborers. People from Jerusalem and from surrounding villages. People come from Jericho and Tekoa, about five miles down the road. They've got their own things to do, but they come to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. Men and women. Verse 12 says, Shalom and his daughters worked on this. There is a note of realism in Nehemiah's account In verse 5, speaking of Tekoa, another village's nobles, he said they wouldn't put their shoulder to the work. But that didn't seem to discourage the people. In fact, the men of Tekoa took on two sections. Almost as if to say, these nobles are bringing shame to our name as Tekoaites. We'll build two sections to make up for it. They threw themselves working side by side. With that one exception, the people of Israel found the need and the mission so compelling that they came together in unity to get the job done. The need was urgent. Now I've got kind of a sliding scale of how urgent needs are. For like, you know, my breaks. I might think, I haven't changed my brakes in a while. I should do that this summer. That's level one. Level two might be, I hear him chirping a little bit. I should get to that soon. Level three is, they're grinding now. I need to do that today. Level four is, I blew out my brake line, and the only way I could stop is by downshifting and using the parking brake. That happened on my 94 Chevy Cavalier. That's code red urgency, okay? Uh, Jerusalem was existing somewhere between level three and code red. They were living in the city. The temple had already been rebuilt, but the city had no way of defending itself against raiding parties or armies. 
The need was urgent. And it continued to be a stain on their God's reputation. The city is in disrepair. The city where nations know Yahweh took up residence is dilapidated and falling apart. It's a stain on his reputation. We must come together, work shoulder to shoulder to fix this situation and rebuild the wall. So my question to you, church, do we sense the urgency in our work? How compelling do we find the mission that we have been given, the task that we have been assigned? Here in our church, we have plenty of things that could divide us, right? We've got the town and gown distinction. We've got people who are professors and students, blue-collar laborers, business owners, hourly wage earners. Here we've got IU faithful and Purdue grads. Here we have black, white, and brown skin. Here we have Republican and Democrat. Here we have Arminian and Calvinist, at least one. We've got credo-baptists, and pedo-baptists. We've got people who say amen and people who say amen. People who love traditional hymns and contemporary songs. Lots of differences, lots of potential points of division. Is the mission important enough to come together, work shoulder to shoulder to finish the job? It is. It is because of the source of the mission. We weren't handed this task by some four-star general. We weren't assigned the job by a politician skilled in rhetoric or a coach who gave a great halftime speech. Our task was given to us by Jesus. Our friend, our brother, our Lord, our Savior, our King has assigned us the task that comes from him. And it is a critical task to come together, steward, and proclaim the gospel of salvation, which is the only way that people can be saved and to make disciples It's a task that isn't just for our own good and welfare, but for the good and the welfare of the world, including our kids and our grandkids, who will be handed down the gospel after us. And it's for God's reputation that we take up the task of maintaining strong, healthy churches, of working side by side to proclaim the gospel of his good news. That's the second detail. The people came together and worked shoulder to shoulder to accomplish the task. The third is a really weird detail, I'll admit it, but it stands out. People were working outside their area of expertise 
Because there was need. If you compare and contrast Nehemiah chapter 3 with Exodus 34 and 35, it's a stark difference. In Exodus 34 and 35, the people are given instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And God says, I've raised up craftsmen, skilled in all manner of arts. And I was going to say arts and crafts. That's not the right. You know what I mean. Workmanship. Arts and workmanship. To construct the tabernacle. That's going to include furniture makers, carvers, engravers, embroiderers, weavers. All these people with great skill. They're going to come together and use those skills to build the tabernacle. I see that in our church all the time. People using their skill set to bless the church. I know someone who is incredibly gifted at event planning. I know her pretty well. And I love seeing it when she uses those gifts, those skills that she's developed to bless the church. I know people who are incredibly gifted teachers. Joel Wong, Brenda Whitaker, Anna Oresco, Matt Wooden. They've developed their craft and they use it to bless the church. People who are incredibly gifted in finance and accounting. People like Nate Peterman, Bree Josephy, Ed Ackerman. Who, who use those skills Monday through Friday to earn a living, to build companies, and then they use it to bless the church. I know people who are incredibly skilled in building and property management. Scott Dazinski, Cliff Huggins, Derek Wells, who serve on the property committee to keep this place from falling into disrepair. They use their skills and their gifts or people who are master gardeners like Donna Terry and Sandy, Sandy Dove. Just walk out to the courtyard. It's beautiful because they're using their gifts and their skills to bless the church. That's an Exodus 34, 35 mentality, and I love when I see that in the church. In Nehemiah chapter 3, something different is happening. Nehemiah chapter 3, you've got priests and Levites, city officials. It's not their skill set to come and build a wall, but there was a need. So they're throwing in to build a wall. You've got goldsmiths who are named by name, Uziel and Malkijah. They're not making plaques of dedication for a section of the wall. They're building the wall because there was a need. Hananiah, the perfume maker, is out there building the wall. Not making deodorant for the workers. He's building the wall. And all kinds of merchants, it says. Not their area of expertise, but there was need. And I love it. When I see people say, in our church, that's not my area, but there's a need. A lot of Sunday mornings, I see an engineer with a PhD going in to help teach children 
and huddles. Wednesday nights, you could see a captain in the Marine Corps playing games with kids, junior hires. Probably nothing in your officer training taught you how to do icebreakers with junior hires. But there was a need. An MD who says, yeah, I'll cook dinner for college students on Sunday night. A pastor who patches drywall and changes light bulbs in these chandeliers. Wasn't trained how to do that, but there was a need. So he takes it up. Says, yeah, I'll do that. Currently, the church has some significant needs that Bob's talked to you about in the announcements. We need help with camp still. Mindy needs help with the kiddos or the littles throughout the summer. And maybe you're saying, like I would say, kids ain't my thing. So? There's a need. Make it your thing. Step in to where there's a need. To quote one of my favorite, one of my kids' favorite cartoons growing up, Robots, Mr. Big Weld, see a need, fill a need. That's what you see going on here in Nehemiah chapter 3. All these people Stepping in to meet a need. The fourth detail of this. Though the city was in desperate need, it was in disrepair, the walls were still broken down, it was still the city of David. Nehemiah kind of throws that in there. It's verse 12. In chapter 11, he refers to Jerusalem as the holy city. Now, a skeptic might look at it and say, a holy heap of rubble. But to him, it was still the city of David, that royal city, the capital of Israel. It was still the holy city, because that's where the temple was. That's where God had chosen to take up residence. It was a great and glorious city because of that. It's interesting. The first section of the wall that is rebuilt is the Sheep Gate. Right in front of the temple. Right adjacent to the temple. And the first workers were the priests. And when they finished it, they dedicated it, which means they consecrated it. They set it apart as special and holy Because it was part of this holy city. The temple's there. Without the temple, Jerusalem's just another city. But this, again, was the holy city. Volunteers came from surrounding communities, Jericho, Tekoa. Think about what they had to have done. They had to have left their crops untended, their houses behind for a time to come and throw themselves into this work of God didn't benefit them directly. But it was the city of David. The holy city. I think sometimes we just need to be reminded that the church, it's the bride of Christ. 
It's Mount Zion, the unshakable kingdom. Sometimes you look around and you're like, this rubble? (laughs) That's fallen into disrepair, disrepute, that is in the public eye an object of scorn? This church? Yes. (laughs) The church. It's the beautiful bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the holy city. God will prosper the work of the church. So let's get up and do the work of repairing its reputation. Do the work of doing good works so that people will see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. The last detail is actually a question. Fifth, where do we see Jesus in this chapter? It's a list of names and locations. Where does Jesus show up? The last sermon I preached here was Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And he's walking with his disciples and he says, from, the text says, from all of the prophets and Moses, he showed them what had to happen concerning him. In other words, the whole Old Testament, he was saying, was about him. So, huh. Nehemiah chapter 3. How is that about Jesus? Well, Nehemiah, he's great. But he's only a type. Only a foreshadowing of Christ. Nehemiah brought together a diverse group of people. People from Jerusalem, Jericho, Tekoa, priests, Levites, craftsmen, workers, men, women. When you say it that way, it sounds a little bit like Galatians 3. A little bit like how Paul describes the church. Barbarian, Scythian, male, female, slave, free, all brought together in unity to Christ, with Christ. Jesus brings together every tribe, every nation, every people into his city, his church. He brings together humanity. Even more gloriously than that, Jesus brings together humanity and deity to accomplish the mission. Nehemiah brought together a whole strew of humans. Jesus brings together humanity and deity to accomplish his mission of providing not just security for an earthly city, but eternal security for his people. He does it to meet our great need of reconciliation with God, of security from the righteous wrath of God, protection from our great enemies, sin and Satan and death. And he does it for God's glory, repairing and renewing not just a portion of a wall, but all of God's creation. 
restored and renewed to wholeness. Restored and renewed to the pristine garden. That's what Jesus does. Better than Nehemiah. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. Grateful for obscure passages that force us to dig down deep and ask why. Oh, why is this here? Not just a history lesson of what happened. But to point us to you and to how you work to accomplish your mission using means and prospering it. Father, again, we pray that you would find us to be faithful and willing participants in your mission of rebuilding, of renewing, of extending salvation, of proclaiming the gospel. Father, we pray that you would prosper that work in Jesus' precious name. Amen.